so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. America is becoming more and more secular, leaving many Christians wondering what the future of our society will look like. Instead of retreating, though, this is an opportunity for believers to share and live out the gospel. Listen in as Dr. Moeller discusses this unique time in history. It's great to be here with you at the Village Church with the RLC and so many other friends. Mary and I are thrilled to be here and... Uh, we're here to talk about important stuff. And I was asked to address the gospel and the future of secular America. And uh, that, that's not really a surprise to me. It's the kind of thing people ask me to talk about. I think they asked me to talk about it because I spend a lot of time talking about it. And uh, these days, we find ourselves talking about these, these words which uh, come naturally to us because we don't know any other way of describing the world around us, but using the kind of language uh, we, we increasingly hear and use and try to understand about a secular America or a post-Christian America and looking beyond America to the West, uh, what, what had been known for centuries as Western civilization, something's changed. And something's changed in a very big way. I'm writing a book project right now on this, and what's really interesting is go back to 1955. 1955, it's hard to come up with a more dead center mark in the 20th century, Will Herberg was a very famous sociologist, the most famous sociologist in America at the time. And he wrote a book entitled Protestant Catholic Jew. And he was describing the religious composition of the United States, Protestant Catholic Jew. He said, if you understand those three words, he was Jewish himself. He said, if you understand those three words, then you're going to understand everything about America. That's all you really need to know religiously about America is Protestant Catholic Jew. And in that order, Protestant the Great, mainstream, the, uh, the great, uh, most influential religious theological stream in the American founding and in American society. And uh, that, that's how you got the word wasp, which made sense in the 20th century, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. That was the, that was the cultural mainstream. And, and after Protestants in influence in a number came Roman Catholics, and uh, there were Catholics here in the very beginning of the American experiment in, uh, in revolutionary colonial America. But it was really the 20th century and the early decades of the 20th century that saw a, a vast explosion of Catholic influence. So if you're going to talk about religion in the United States or America and try to describe it in worldview in the mid-1950s, you'd have to say Protestant, Catholic, and then, and then Jews, speaking of Jewish Americans, also here from the very beginning of the American experiment, and, uh, and, and outsize in influence from, from numbers. Uh, there, there's there's virtually no civilization that has been so shaped by Jewish uh, intellectuals and, and Jewish public figures and Jewish public arguments as the United States. 
where uh, the Jewish population has always been a, a minority, a small minority within the larger whole. We're looking at about 300 plus million Americans, about 3 million Jewish people, but vastly outnumbered on college faculties and in, uh, in, in ranks of, uh, of the professions. And it's a very interesting snapshot of America, 1955, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. The point is that the word secular, as we use it today, and as I've been assigned today, hardly even appears in the book. It's, it's, it's not even really in the background of the imagination. There, there, there were no secular Americans in 1955. Now, you know that, that that's not true. There were secular Americans, but there were so few, you didn't have to talk about them. In Europe, in the, the late 19th century and the early 20th century, there had been the rise of, of, of people who thought of themselves as secular, but they were, they were number one, uh, they, they tended to be either anarchists or, uh, or, or political revolutionaries of one sort or another, or they tended to be kind of uh, on the fringe intellectual types. But, and if you're in the United States, you could always say, well, that's Europe. What do you expect out of Europe? It's Europe. But here in the United States, Protestant, Catholic, Jew in 1955 pretty much summarized everything. But in, in the year 2018, we're, we're really, we're drowning in data that tells us this isn't so anymore. And, and, and I'm just talking about data. We'll get to experience in a moment, but data, what's the data? What do they, they tell us? What do these data points mean? Fastest growing group in America of religious designation for now the last 20 years is those with no religious designation. And, and there's a new vocabulary here. I was on Larry King Live one night. This is a long time ago when that was on CNN. And uh, we were talking about this, and I mentioned that the fastest-growing religious group in America is nuns, which puzzled Larry, because uh, he was picturing N-U-N-S, and uh, uh, they're still around, but they're not the fastest-growing group, uh, religious group in America, I can tell you. They're not reproducing, and uh, they're, not, uh, they're, not, they're not recruiting very fast either, but it's, it's not the... N-U-N-S, it's the N-O-N-E-S. And it was so new, it, people's ears weren't even trained to hear about the nuns, the, the, those who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And that, that, that's the fastest growing group. And not only that, it's, it's now one out of five of all American adults. But more importantly, it's one out of three of all American adults under age 30. And, and so you're talking about one out of three then you've got to go back to Protestant, Catholic, Jew, and, and you've got to say Protestant, Catholic, Jew, secular. And then, of course, we know that doesn't exhaust the possibilities in, in a nation of religious diversity and immigrant communities and, and, for that matter, a whole lot of theological experimentation that goes by many names. You're going to have to have a subtitle with a lot of different designations. But the point is, secular is now a major reality. And not only that, we know it's the movement. We know it's the trajectory. We know it's the momentum. Uh, America is not just now defined by those who define themselves as secular. America is increasingly becoming a secular nation. Now, now where would we look to try to understand that? Well, we mentioned Europe. Let's go to Europe for a moment. In Europe, it's so bad that Stephen Brillabant, the most, most important researcher right now working on this, points out that Amongst younger Europeans, Christianity is disappearing as a memory. Now, the way to think of it is this. Uh, in, in Europe, because uh, we, our uh, separation of church and state, uh, our, our constitutional uh, First Amendment, both for the free expression and free exercise of religion and the, the anti-establishment clause, no establishment clause, means that our Census Bureau can't ask religious questions. 
which is why in the United States we're dependent upon non-governmental researchers to give us data. But in the, uh, in the European context, no First Amendment, no U.S. Constitution, they can ask anything they want. So the census bureaus in the various nations tend to ask religious questions, and that's why in Europe there has been this huge class of people who've been known as census Christians. And, and what that means is they're only Christian when they mark the census. And they're census Christians because most of them, when they have to choose an option, choose that one because that was their parents or their grandparents. They have no ongoing personal identification with Christianity whatsoever, but when they have to answer the census question or fill out the census form, they check off Christian. Now, what Brillabond is showing, and this research came out just this year, he's showing that the fastest movement in Europe is amongst persons who are not even census Christians. And, and he points to how important that is because that means that there's no longer even any sense of saying my family once identified this way. And, and we, we've known that as the Christian worldview and Christian truth claims have been an eclipse and there's been the erosion of, 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 of even Christian morality and Christian conscience throughout much of Europe, there's been at least the memory that it's Christianity that's being rejected. It's Christianity that's being left behind increasingly there's not even the sense that Christianity was ever there to be left behind. Now, when you come to the United States, you say, well, that's not the U.S. How can you talk about a secular America the same way you would talk about a secular Europe? Well, you can't accept. When we look at Europe, we're looking at the future. The key thing to keep in mind is that when we look at Europe now, we're seeing the United States in the future. And then we used to be able to say, as recently as, say, the turn of the century, in the, in the late 1990s, in the early 21st century, we would be able to say, okay, here's how it works. When you look at Europe, you're looking at the United States a generation from now. But time's collapsing. And now when you look at Europe, you're looking at the United States tomorrow. That's how fast this is coming. Now, we've been using the word secular. I was assigned the word. What does it mean? Well, if you go back, if you know the, the etymology of the word, it goes back to the city, and it, it refers to the distinction, most importantly, between the city and, uh, and, and monastic communities. The city was the, the seculum. That was, uh, and, and, and even those who followed uh, religious orders in the cities in medieval Europe, they were, uh, they, they were considered secular priests because they were in the city. They weren't, they weren't cloistered away. But secular in our language, rooted in that, means that a secular condition is one that has no authoritative reference to God whatsoever. Uh, the, the condition of operating out of any presumption of theism is not secular. Secular means no presumption of theism. I spent a lot of time debating atheism, and uh, atheists are always interesting to debate. And here's one of the fastest ways you can frustrate an atheist. Ask the atheist what kind of atheist she is. It's because atheists want to think of atheism as a thing, but atheism is never a thing. Atheism is something, which means atheism is almost always historically the rejection of some specific deity, which, by the way, is what drives atheists crazy because the whole point is they want to escape theism, but atheism is a hard way to escape theism. I mean, and they say, we want to define ourselves positively. Well, I'm all ears, you know. 
You define yourself by what you don't believe. That's how that alpha privative in front of, it got in front of theism. So atheism means you don't believe in theism, but that means you don't believe in theo. Don't, you don't believe, what, what, what God is it that you don't believe in? Well, here's what's interesting. In Europe, there was the, there was the very natural presumption that what it meant to be an atheist was to be someone who was rejecting the God of the Bible, the Trinitarian God of Christian theology. Uh, understood also to be in continuity with Yahweh, Jehovah, the, the, the God revealed in and who revealed the Old Testament. But increasingly secular in our context means so secular that, that there is no sense of an ongoing even rejection of or defining over against biblical Christianity. So in a secular age or in a secular condition, we increasingly find ourselves talking to persons who we know are made in God's image, and we know have implanted within them a knowledge of God that they, when they close their eyes, cannot really deny. We know that they're made in God's image in such a way they have a moral capacity to, that they cannot deny. But, but we're talking to people who increasingly believe themselves to be truly secular. They believe themselves thus to be self-defining. They believe human society to be just an, an, an accidental assemblage of, of highly developed organisms who live together and have to figure out on our own in this brave new world without God how we're going to organize ourselves and, and, and how, how we're going to to, uh, to, to legislate morality and, and how we're going to negotiate the biggest questions of life, of meaning. And, and so that's why everything's up for grabs. In a non-secular condition, none of these big questions can ultimately be up for grabs. But to look at it and put it negatively and just try to answer it this way, how in the world would you explain a society that in just a very short amount of time seems to have forgotten what marriage is and always has been throughout every human civilization in, in recorded history. Well, it's, it's because it's a society that believes everything is now up for our definition. We, we aren't assigned, we aren't created, we aren't determined, we aren't we aren't addressed by God. We're not named by God. We're not accountable to God. And, and, and God is now so far off of the screen of the culture that when you show up making an argument about God, then these days you show up increasingly as someone who must be by definition part of the problem rather than part of the solution. But my main interest this afternoon is not to talk about what it means to be secular. I think you can pretty much figure out what that is. You can look at the data. You can, you can, you can look at the analysis. You can pretty much figure out what that is. But mostly because you are alive and you are thoughtful and you are observant, so you actually do know what secular means. And we're watching it unfold right before our eyes. The question is, what do we do now? What do we do now? I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I know you know this passage. I want us to look to a passage we all know. And then I want to ask if we really know this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 18. 
Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. And and, and you know this text. I know you know this text. I think this is one of the first texts I preached as a young preacher. It's one of those texts I, I sought to understand and when you are in the kind of role that I'm in from time to time, you, you, you're called upon to preach a text, and uh, sometimes you get to name the text, and you put it in the context of what you're doing, and sometimes, especially in conferences, this is a text that this seemed right. John MacArthur invited me 20-some years ago, the first time to speak at the Shepherds Conference out on the West Coast. First time I'm going to preach to the Shepherds Conference. And uh, the other guest preacher was a, a wonderful, wonderful Scottish preacher by the name of Eric Alexander, just, a, just, just an incredible preacher. He came from Scotland. I came from Louisville. We ended up, the two of us were, were being uh, transported from the hotel in order to have dinner with John MacArthur before the evening session when, uh, when John was to preach and I was to preach. Good deal. So Eric Alexander's right along and he says, lad, what text shall you preach? And I said, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, the, the deal was that back then, you didn't know who, what anyone else was preaching until you got to the conference. No assignment, just, uh, you know, whatever the Lord lays on your heart, which is a very dangerous evangelical formula. <laughs> and uh, what the Lord laid on my heart was 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I was fired up to preach about the, the foolishness of preaching. And so I, I got in, the, in this uh, vehicle with uh, Eric Alexander, you know, and, and what are you going to preach? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, oh, wonderful, wonderful. I'm not preaching on that text. And he, <laughs> it's the first thing you want to know. So, so we got there, we're having dinner in John's office, and Eric Alexander asked him, he says, John, you're opening us up tonight. What are you going to preach on? He said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Eric Alexander just wiped the corner of his mouth, looked at me, and said, I trust we have plan B, lad. Uh, <laughs> actually, I didn't, but I, I was about to as I was sitting there realizing, okay, this is, this is a disaster. But the reason I bring that up now is to say, I'm 20-plus I'm years older than I was then, and, and the context of my preaching is very different now than it was then, and, and therein lies a parable. I think for many of us as evangelicals, there's a reflex to look at certain texts 
and think of them like uh, the, the, the fire hose or the fire extinguisher. You stay in a hotel, you go to a school building or even a church building, wherever you are, any public building, you're going to see a glass door and behind it is going to be a fire hose or a, or a fire extinguisher. And, and you know the words that are on the glass, break glass in case of emergency. By the way, I noticed one just the other day and I, I, it said break glass in case of emergency. I noticed there was also just a very handy knob you could pull. But uh, it would be more dramatic to break the glass. I get it. So, okay. If, uh, if, if you can't open the knob, break the glass. But you think about that, and, and uh, you're glad not to have that emergency, right? <laughs> you really don't want to have to do this. And I think we think of many biblical texts that way. By instinct or reflex or by evangelical custom, we think of certain texts as being behind glass. Break glass in case of emergency. And what we mean by that is there just might be some situations where some Christians need this text. Or there just might be some situations and some context in which the urgent message of this text is going to be really important for Christ's people. But for most safe, normal times, we can leave that text behind glass. So when we read Peter say, that we are sojourners and resident aliens, that we, we have no home in this world. I think, well, you know, there's some Christians who are going to need that. There, there, there's some Christians who, who are just like those in Cappadocia and Bithynia and, and elsewhere that, that Peter was writing to in, the, in his letter. You look at that and say, well, evidently there's some Christians for whom that text is going to be really important. We should be very glad the Holy Spirit gave that to the church in the New Testament for those people. But you realize there's no part of the New Testament that's behind glass. There's no part of the Bible, and in particular, there's no part of the New Testament that is for some Christians that sometimes, just in case, there might be an urgency in which that text is needed. There might be some Christians at some time who wake up and say, hey, guess what? Uh, We, unlike most Christians in most places throughout most times, find ourselves resident aliens, strangers and pilgrims. Honestly, I think that's the way most American Christians have read a lot of these texts. We know there are people in some places under persecution. There are churches in some places in a, in a far more secular society. We know there's some people in the former Soviet Union with repressive communistic atheism. And, uh, and right now in, the, in the, the, the nation of China, we, we know there are some people who are in house churches because they can't have any other kind of churches. So, the, so they might need that kind of text. But what that betrays in us is the fact that we have been seduced by a culture for generations that told us, you're perfectly welcome here. You're calling the shots here. If you can look at that book in 1955, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, if you're Protestant or Catholic or Jewish, you're in. You're in the center of the culture, in the center of influence. You define what it means to be American. Oh, and, and by the way, a lot of the evidence that we think that is out there for a non-secular America, we need to understand that a lot of that came in a very specific historical context, and that historical context was the Cold War. When you had the United States of America and its allies over against the Soviet Union, the Soviet bloc as it became known, and their allies, and, and a part of the worldview of communism based in the dialectical materialism of Marxism was an officially enforced, very sterile atheism. 
And so the United States of America began to define Americanism, what it meant to be a good American in ways that were explicitly theistic is over against the, uh, the atheistic ramparts of world communism. So, th- so things we think of as just making a lot of sense, such as uh, in God we trust on the currency, or, uh, or under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. You need to know that language came out of the Cold War. And, and it was at a time when the United States and its allies understood that we were in a massive ideological battle with the Soviet Union and, and that nation's allies. And, and one of the issues of ideological warfare was belief in God. And so believing in God became very much a part of what it meant to be a good American in the middle of the Cold War. Children reciting the, the Pledge of Allegiance in school every day. Uh, just handing over a, a bill or a, or a part American currency within God we trust. It was a patriotic act that required a patriotic affirmation of the existence of God. And of course, given all our constitutional niceties, that had to be a rather generic God. But in the background of that rather generic God was at least the haunting presence of the God of the Bible. In the middle of the Cold War, President Dwight David Eisenhower went to, uh, to New York City to dedicate the headquarters of the building that uh, housed several American denominations and what was then called the National Council of Churches. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a horribly, it, it, for, for an act of American patriotism, it was ridiculous because it was Stalinist architecture. Go figure. And in fact, it was such an ugly, sterile piece of concrete, they called it the God Box just a concrete box in New York City. But the President of the United States, Dwight David Eisenhower, who had been the the general who won the war in Europe, he went to dedicate the building, and, and he spoke a little too candidly for an American president. He said, a great nation requires belief in God, and I don't care what God it is. Oh, my goodness. He kind of let it slip there. A great nation requires a belief in God, but I, I really don't care what God it is which is a pretty convenient thing to say in front of the National Council of Churches building, oddly enough. They weren't sure who God was either, and they're still not. But nonetheless, the point is this. American identity no longer requires belief in God. There's still a role out there for civil religion. There's still the existence of civil religion and American patriotism intertwined with theology, but it really doesn't amount to much theology, and when you distill that theology down, Unfortunately, Dwight David Eisenhower was right as president of the United States. It really doesn't matter what God it is, but it matters to us. It matters everything to us. I was asked to speak of the gospel and the future of secular America, and that's why I turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because I preach this text and I understand this text. I read this text very differently than I did as a younger man. I want to tell you how. Number one, look at the text. One of the most important aspects of this text is that it comes out of the context of conflict in the church in Corinth. You'll you'll notice that in the preceding verses, there are divisions in the church, and without going into detail because there is no time, what's really interesting to us is that Paul sees theology as the answer to division in the church. That's just really helpful for us to know. Because the reflex of so many Christians is to think that if there's conflict in the church, then what we need to do is back off of theology. Because theology is inherently debatable, arguable, and it's divisive. But the New Testament principle says exactly the otherwise. It says exactly the contrary. It says the answer to division in the church is theology. That doesn't mean theology is an academic discipline. It means doctrine. It means truth. And you'll notice that every time Jesus is confronted, 
He makes the reality more doctrinally clear. Every time the apostles have to deal with an issue, not once do they, do they agree to a lowest common denominator kind of consensus theology. Instead, they lean into even greater definition, greater specificity, greater affirmation of the truth, greater detail. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He says, okay, I'm writing to you at Corinth, and by the way, oh my goodness, have you guys read First and Second Corinthians? Of course you have. Answer me the question. Why would any sane Baptist church name itself Corinth Baptist Church? <laughs> I mean, you talk about a scandal. Let's just, my goodness. I preached from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 together for the gospel just a few weeks ago. I'm just thinking, you know, how, how, how does this happen? How does a group of Baptists get together and say, you know what we aspire to? That. Good grief. All right, well, let's escape that for a moment. And apologies to anyone who was baptized in Corinth Baptist Church. Your baptism is still good. Uh, name of the church notwithstanding. Paul says the answer to division is clarity. It's gospel clarity. It's the very gospel of which we're speaking. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of the cross. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, it's ridiculousness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, there you have the, the, entire, the entire issue set out there for us. It's the way it works. There is no neutrality when it comes to the cross. It is either the power of God unto salvation or it's foolishness, folly, ridiculousness. It's scandal, it's embarrassment. There's no middle ground. Now, that's very helpful to us because this was written in the first century by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the Apostle Paul, and it's extremely convenient for us because all of a sudden we now realize just how true this is. In our context, as we're thinking about the gospel in an increasingly secular America, we got to understand that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the very center of the gospel, it doesn't look merely more interesting to many Americans. It looks more outlandish scandalous, horrifying, retrograde. Just this past week, I was looking at an article in a literary journal, and uh, it was talking about the fact that so many people in America today can't understand atonement metaphors. Now, this person has no theological agenda, trust me. No theological agenda, just an understanding of, of, of how little modern college freshmen can understand, say, the scarlet letter. Because there's nothing scarlet to 18-year-olds. And, and, and so you look at that and they go, well, how can the scarlet letter be understood by people for whom scarlet, which means blood, which ties to blood atonement, and, and, and it's, just, it's just gone. And so the, the point being made by this teacher of freshman literature in the American university is, 18-year-old Americans don't have the category for understanding why they're supposed to be scandalized by the scarlet letter. Well, you look at this and you go, okay, all right. If we just explain it to them, then they're going to like it more. Well, here's where the Apostle Paul also helps us. It's, it's, it's just a situation in which the distinctions are just being made graphically clear. The distinction in this text, in verse 18, is between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And, and you'll notice again, there, there's no middle ground, there's no sort of perishing and kind of on the way to being saved. There's a, there's a clear distinction. And the distinction 
is at least diagnosable by whether or not the cross appears to be foolishness or whether it appears to be the power of God unto salvation. And then, of course, when, when as a younger man, I preached this text. I, I preached it, especially with a good historical analysis. Where's the historical analysis? Well, it shows up very clearly in the text. We need to bring it to the text because as you look at verse 22, we read, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, so now we have two patterns of rejection of the cross, and they're both historically cited here, and we can understand them in historical context. We have the Jews who seek signs. Boy, do they seek signs. You look at the Gospel of John, and what's the most amazing is Jesus will perform a miracle. John calls it a sign, and then the Pharisees will show up saying, just give us a sign. Oh my goodness, you look at that and say, that, that's, that's, that's a voluntary insanity. That's a, that, that, that's a kind of self-delusion that uh, it's just almost impossible for us to believe. And then we're told that Greeks seek wisdom. And again, good historical analysis. That's the way that's what I was trained to do in seminary, good historical analysis. Who are the Greeks and what kind of wisdom are they seeking? Well, okay, we can understand. We can understand Greek philosophy, Greek civilization. We can understand the, the Greco-Roman mind. And in particular, Greeks here being a, uh, a, a shorthand for the intellectual elites and the, and the philosophers, because, of course, Greece is now in eclipse. Rome is now in power, but all of Rome's intellectual pretensions were basically Greek. And so when you say Greeks, everyone in the first century would understand that meant the intellectual elites. We're talking here about Oxford, Cambridge, Berlin, Yale, Harvard, seeking wisdom. Well, this is what's really interesting. Should we use seek wisdom? Yes. Should I seek wisdom? Of course, we should seek wisdom. But the Bible's really clear about two very different, totally opposed understandings of wisdom. There's a worldly wisdom, and then there's a godly wisdom. There are two completely kinds of wisdom. Because the, the worldly wisdom, and by the way, we depend upon a lot of worldly wisdom. When I go to the emergency room, I really don't want to check the denominational affiliation of my surgeon. I want to know where he or she went to medical school. And I want it to be really recognizable. Harvard's good. Right then, Harvard's really good. Do I want to trust someone to the Harvard Divinity School? No. Do I want a cardiologist in the Harvard Medical School? I hope that's not hypocritical, but yes. Yes, yeah. I, I don't want anyone with a, uh, a medical school post office box 84, you know, Los Angeles, California. No, no, put the knife down. No, 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 not going to happen. And, and, and you look at worldly wisdom, there's a whole lot of wisdom in worldly wisdom, which again, the biblical worldview affirms by the fact of common grace. So there's a lot of wisdom in worldly wisdom, but the problem is that the ultimate destination of worldly wisdom is death. But then there's the wisdom of God, and oddly enough, the wisdom of God is in the shape of the cross. And the point of the text is that the cross is the refutation of those who seek signs, because if you're seeking a sign, you're not looking for that sign. And in fact, that's the anti-sign. You're, if you're looking for a Messiah who's going to reign on David's throne and you have in your mind the expectation of what that must look like, what it does not look like is a cross. And if you're looking for sophistication, intellectual sophistication, there is nothing more lacking in intellectual sophistication than a bloody cross. 
But again, that was, that was when I was younger. I, I, was, I was satisfied with that historical analysis. Why? Because when I was a young preacher, I, I knew that there were secular people, and I knew that there was a secular society. I knew that the intellectual elites were trending in that direction, but I didn't have to look at people on an ongoing basis. I didn't yet know many people on an ongoing basis who were genuinely, legitimately secular. But now I do. And so do you. And the younger you go in the population, the the closer you get to a college campus, the closer you get to a city, the closer you get to a coast, the closer you get to certain enterprises like Silicon Valley, the more secular the context becomes. So much so that to my embarrassment, I now realize when I preached this text in the beginning of my ministry, I preached it as if it were behind glass, ready to be broken in case of emergency. Well, brothers and sisters, folks, we, we, we are now in that emergency but the fault was ever believing that that's where that text was. That text, that text made perfect sense to those in Corinth in the first century, breathed out by the Holy Spirit through Paul. It made perfect sense. People in the first century said that is exactly, this was a wake-up call. It was a defining moment. It was shock doctrine for the Corinthians. Shock doctrine is when the apostle Paul says, look, Stop arguing over whose name you were baptized in and, and whose faction you belong to. Stop arguing about all that peripheral junk you're arguing about because the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. Those to us, he says, who are being saved. It is the very power of God. So what's the point here is we come to a conclusion There is no text in any of Scripture. Most particularly, there is no text in the entirety of the New Testament that is behind glass just in case we need it. We need all of it all the time. In this text, which in a pre-secular age, we we, we were seduced into believing might be necessary for some Christians, but some places it turns out to be very necessary for us now and for the church always. And and this means that we ask the question, what are we going to do now in the face of an increasingly secular America? The answer is, we're going to do, and we must do, we're called to do exactly what the church was called to do in the first century. And it's folly and ridiculousness and scandal and heresy and unfaithfulness to believe there ever was another answer. There never was a time when the, the, the New Testament church was supposed to preach comfort to the comfortable. There never was a time when, when, when the gospel of Jesus Christ was to be reduced to an item of ideological, a weapon of ideological warfare in Western democracy against communism. There, there, there never was really much Christianity to cultural Christianity. You see, in 1955, when Will Herberg wrote that book, Protestant Catholic Jew, Biblically-minded Christians should have read 1 Corinthians and broken some glass. Because if you can tame gospel Christianity into a triple title of a book that explains America, then the cross is what's missing. So here's the good news. God's not shocked by the rapid expansion of the nuns. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not have a new assignment in a new cultural situation. We don't have to gather together and say, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's try to hope there's a third Corinthians because evidently we need more than we've got. This is where Christ's people say, 
Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have the gospel of a cross and an empty tomb. And we know that Jesus saves. And we know that the cross is not now all of a sudden foolishness to those who are perishing. It always has been. And until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, it always will be. But the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It always has been. And it always will be. You know, the other thing about that ridiculous issue of the fire extinguisher behind the glass, it assumes that normal means no fire. That's also a misunderstanding, isn't it? Because if you understand the Bible, from Genesis 3 onwards, the reality is always fire. The folly was ever thinking, we didn't need to break the glass in the first place. So when you get up and teach in your church, break some glass. Open the Word of God. Set it forth. When you're talking in the school or local coffee shop to someone who does not yet know Christ, smell smoke. Sense fire. Break glass and preach the gospel. Here's the one thing we know. Preaching the gospel is never the wrong thing to do. Always the right thing to do. And it is always the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful that you have given us the instructions to know exactly what it is we are to do. Thank you for giving us your word. We are to teach and preach in season and out of season. Father, convict us of ever putting your word behind glass and set this generation loose, breaking glass everywhere we see it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Podcast and leave us a review. And join us next week as we hear a panel about human dignity from a holistic perspective.